All right, we are continuing this week in our study of the book of Acts. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn again to Acts chapter 10. Uh, if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll be able to find that on page 1168, uh, Acts chapter 10. Now, last week, uh, we spent some time looking together at the work of God bringing Peter the Apostle and Cornelius the Roman centurion together, that the Lord sovereignly orchestrated every aspect of that. Now, this morning, I'm going to read again all of chapter 10. We're going to look at the same chapter, but we're going to move our focus a little bit. We're going to focus on a different uh, part of it, a different aspect of this important event. Always when we open God's Word together, we need the Spirit to be present among us, to be leading us and teaching us from His Word. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray and remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 10. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace and for Your Word that is truth. We pray that you would teach us from it, that you, by your Spirit, would be present among us this morning, that you would instruct us in your truth, in your promise to us. Give us grace to believe it more and to trust you more in the midst of our study of your Word. We pray that you would restrain our sin, that we would uh, believe and see only that which is true and not what we bring and import into your Word. That you would cause us to see you clearly in your word. Glorify your name in the reading and the preaching of this, your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading Acts chapter 10. This is God's word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to all the people, prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa to bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, that is about noon. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made unclean, or what God has made clean, do not call common. Now this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. While Peter was still inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry, inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, rise. Go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went, went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house the prayers for the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right or righteous is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, excuse me, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, and then Peter declared, Can anyone now withhold water for baptizing this people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to remain with them for some days. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Speaking truth to power. Have you heard that phrase? Are you familiar with it? It's shorthand for being willing to tell someone an unpleasant truth when the person you're talking to has the power to make your life uncomfortable or worse, awful, for displeasing them. Now, obviously, it's not difficult to tell somebody something good, right? If somebody has power and you go and you tell them, hey, this is great, you're doing a good job, nobody's going to get upset about that, right? Uh, I completely agree your planned initiative is going to succeed and will probably garner a lot of sales, right? Your boss isn't going to get mad about that. Nobody's hesitating to give that news. But if the message is one that they won't like, that's another story. Ma'am, I know you're excited about this initiative that you planned, but it's fundamentally flawed and it's going to cost the company thousands of dollars at least and possibly millions. Sir, you can't give that order. It's illegal and it's just wrong. It's immoral. Those are much more difficult messages to give to someone who can take their displeasure, their embarrassment or whatever out on you. 
When I was in college, or and a little bit after college, I used to enjoy watching TV shows about politics and the workings of government, dramatized ideas of what that could theoretically be if everybody was perfect or something. Um, and this idea of speaking truth to power came up fairly regularly because the reality is in any well-functioning organization, whether that's government or business or whatever, in any well-functioning organization, since no mere human gets every decision right, leaders need people who will call them on mistakes, who will correct their mistakes and curb their excesses and point and work together to find the best possible answer. But no one enjoys being corrected. No one likes being rebuked. And there's always the temptation, if you're the one who has power, there's the temptation to get rid of the troublemaker who's doing the correcting or rebuking. One show that I particularly enjoyed, some of the main characters were speechwriters for a man in high office. And as part of the evaluation period when they first started the job, uh, the leader would, they, they would have to write a speech and the leader would give some notes back on the speech that they had written, things that he wanted changed or adjustments that he wanted to be made. Uh, and, but he would mix in some bad ideas, some ideas that were wrong to see how they would respond. In the show, it was a test and it was training all in, the, all in one. Would the new writer catch the bad note at all? Would he even see that there was a problem with it? And if he did, would he challenge... Would he mention it to his speechwriting boss? Would he go to the, the, the office holder and challenge him directly and say, this is a bad idea, you need not to do this? Or would his fear of reprisal cow him into silence? Now, on the surface, it may not seem like all that big a deal, but this is a vital necessity. Maybe you've had the experience of having to tell someone in authority over you something that you knew they wouldn't like. If so, you will know the churning stress that you feel as you anticipate the conversation, as you wonder whether they will receive it well or whether they will retaliate, strike back at you. Interestingly, that feeling is pretty much exactly the same thing that many of us, maybe even most of us, feel when we consider sharing our faith. We don't live in Iran or China where the government can, can and will come and arrest you or worse for proclaiming Christ. We don't even live someplace like India where officially, technically, the legal standard is tolerance of all religions, but the culture will not tolerate Christianity. He's adamantly and even violently against any form of faith in Christ. For us, except in really, truly unusual circumstances, the worst that we face is people just kind of not liking us much, Thinking thinking that we are weird or foolish, or annoying, or all three together. But y'all, that's enough for most of us to be really uncomfortable with, hesitant to tell people about Jesus, to speak the truth of Christ to those who have the power to reject us. We want to be liked. We want to be valued. We want to be respected. We want to be part of the in crowd. And we fear that talking about Jesus and our faith in Him and calling people to repent will get us thrown out of the in crowd. As an aside, if any of this feels at all familiar to you, this month the librarians have recommended the book When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. Let me put my hearty amen on that recommendation. It is a phenomenal book. uh, It helps us to walk through how to recognize the temptation of valuing uh, other people's opinion above God's opinion, of thinking less of what God thinks of us 
than we do of what our coworkers or our neighbors or our friends will think of us. And it helps us to grow in practical acceptance of God's opinion of who we are, of our standing before Him. If you've ever felt discomfort or struggled to value and accept God's opinion of you, please check that book out and read it. On some level, it's heart surgery without anesthetic. It can be hard to read, but it's good. It's valuable. Uh, it's a temptation, truth be told, that we've all dealt with at one point or another. So, tale lege, take up and read. All right, anyway, back to our passage this morning. I said earlier that we'd be focusing our attention differently this morning than we did last week, even though it's the same passage. Last week, again, we were more focused on God's sovereign, miraculous guiding of events and people to bring the gospel to Cornelius and to his family, formally including Gentiles in the gospel message without requiring them to become Jews first. And that was a radical concept in that day. In every instance of salvation coming to a person or to a people, God acts first and we respond. This is the pattern throughout Scripture, throughout history. When someone comes to trust in the Lord, it is because the Lord acted first in their life. The Lord initiated with that person first. So last week we looked at God's sovereign ordering of all of the things to bring Peter to a place where he could assimilate the idea of Gentiles being accepted on equal footing with the Jews and even serve as the means that God would use to bring that message and proclaim it to the Gentiles. The Lord sends an angel to Cornelius to tell him to send for Peter and gives Peter a vision and some explanation with their direct audible voice. Here's the thing. Couldn't God have skipped some of those steps? Couldn't he have done this a little bit more efficiently? I mean, couldn't the angel just have declared the gospel straight to Cornelius without having to send for Peter and wait four days for him to come? I mean, there's got to be a more efficient way to do this, right? Of course he could have, obviously. So we have to ask, if God chose to do this instead of what would have been much more efficient, what is it that the Lord is doing here? Why did God choose this method rather than something that was more efficient? to get the the message to Cornelius and the Gentiles. I think we have to recognize that God is doing something more, more than one thing here, working in the lives of all of his people, not just trying to get the message to Cornelius as efficiently and quickly as possible. What else is going on? Looked at it that way, I think we have to recognize that Peter's message, starting in verse 34, carries even more weight than we might otherwise think. And I think let's look at three aspects here. First, we're going to see the offense of the gospel message then the beauty of the gospel message, and finally the foundation of the gospel message. So the offense, the beauty, and the foundation of the gospel message. First, the offense. So as I usually do this week, I went looking for illustrations as I was thinking about this sermon, stories, connections that I could make that might help explain some of the ideas here. And almost every story that I came across that somebody had tagged as connected to this passage was about racism. And you can probably understand why the Jews and the Gentiles, different races, if I can use an anachronistic modern term applied then, uh, different races who actively excluded each other from all sorts of things are shown in this passage to be equal in God's sight. That's a message that has resonance in our day and our time, our age. It's not unimportant, especially in our modern context. There's a beauty in these historical examples that I was reading of people who'd experienced horrible racism 
or who had perpetrated horrible racism. Reconciling with each other, forgiving or repenting is appropriate, and moving forward as one people in Christ on equal footing. That is beautiful, and it's worth talking about the ways that the Lord is making one covenant people for Himself out of every tribe and tongue and nation. As a Christian, our primary identity, your primary identity is not black or white or whatever. It is not American or Palestinian or Chinese or whatever. It is not Michigan or Ohio State. It's fine to be aware of those things. But our primary identity, our primary defining feature, always and only, is child of the king. That's it. That's what defines you as a person. That's what your core identity is, Christian. Verse 34, God shows no partiality. That is, the Lord doesn't like Israelites better than Palestinians or vice versa. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Great. That'll preach. Let's go. The problem is, that isn't the central point of the passage. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Racial reconciliation is good and valid, and we should work to dig out whatever latent racial bias there might be in our hearts. But the point of the passage is not fix racism. Verse 35 is not good news. Oh, it's better news than God likes these people and not those people. So if you're one of those people, well, sorry, hombre, you're just up a creek. Look at what the message of verse 35 actually is. Fear the Lord and do what is righteous, and then the Lord will find you acceptable. As long as you don't think too much about it, that sounds good, right? Sounds like good news. It is not. It is terrible news. And it is ultimately deeply offensive for most of us. As an aside, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're thinking about sharing the gospel, and we consider this offensiveness, there are two basic temptations that we face. Which, which one you're more drawn to is, I suspect, more a feature of personality than anything else, but there are these, these two basic temptations. The first, we see this offense of the gospel and we minimize it. We don't want people to be offended and therefore reject Christ, and so we minimize the offense as much as possible, make it as easy as possible for people to come to faith. So that the offense doesn't drive them away. We minimize it, make it as small as possible or even smaller so that they'll love Christ. Now, on the one hand, it is appropriate for me to consider how to share the gospel so that I am not offensive. However, there is an irreducible offense inherent in the gospel message. It cannot be done away with without doing away with the message itself. Without removing the hope of the gospel, you can't remove all of the offense. Our striving should not be to remove every offense, but to speak in such a way that the true offense of the gospel is made clear as opposed to my offensive attitude, my offensive behavior, as opposed to maybe a cultural way of explaining it that is offensive to someone not from that culture. That's one temptation. The other temptation is the opposite end, to maximize the offense, to think the gospel presents an offense, so I'm going to be as offensive as possible while presenting it. And if people are offended, they're offended at Christ. And then when people get offended, we think, well, they're offended at Christ, not they're offended because I'm being a jerk. Some, maybe most, will stumble over the gospel's offense when it's clearly and rightly proclaimed. But 
brothers and sisters, as we proclaim the gospel, let us, let those whom we're talking to, let them be offended by Christ's righteous standard, by His grace, and not by us while we try to represent Him. Let us clarify the offense so that they are offended by the right things and not by us. But why is this message so offensive? What is it about it that that offends us? Here's the thing. In my mind, I'm a pretty good guy. And I'm guessing you probably think the same about yourself. I generally do what is right. I haven't robbed any banks. I haven't killed anybody. I help people around me when I can. I try to be a good neighbor. I give money to the needy. I pray regularly. I'm a good guy. Certainly better than those other people are. Just look at the news any day of the week. I mean, I am way better than those crazy people. But now you're telling me that I, great guy that I am, that I am not good enough? That in God's eyes, I'm in the same category with Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Bin Laden? Are you crazy? Forget that noise. And other phrases that are somewhat less polite for public consumption. On some level, every religion in the world other than Christianity boils down to one thing. Keep this list of rules. Do all these things so that God will like you. Now, obviously the lists are all different, right? If you look at the list in Islam, it's very different from the list in Buddhism and different still from Confucianism and whatever else. The lists are all different. But at the end of the day, each religion has a list that you must keep to have any hope of being acceptable to God. Because this is how our minds work. We want to earn favor. And more than that, we think we're able, if we just try really hard, we think we're able to be good enough that God will find us acceptable. That He'll grade on a curve. And because I'm better than those people, that I'm, therefore I'm acceptable even though they're not. We resonate with this. We, we desire it. But there's a reason why. This is the message of the covenant of works. The agreement that God made with Adam as representative at the very beginning of time, promising a reward for what? Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. If Adam would just obey perfectly himself forever, then God would reward him. In all of history from Adam to today, no mere human has ever met that standard. Not one. I don't, you don't, no one you've ever met has met that standard. But we think we can. And worse than that, we think we have already. I don't know, we have this genetic memory of that agreement and so we keep trying to make ourselves righteous by keeping lists of commands. And when we can't, keep that list it's too hard and so we adjust the list so that i can actually keep it and but then it doesn't make us feel good so we got to adjust it some more it's it's this treadmill that we're just constantly round and round on the offense of the gospel is the bad news that it's necessary that you are not that you cannot no matter how hard you try at it that you can never be good enough to please the lord you have already failed One strike and you're out, and you've already had your first strike. No matter how much better you are than the other people around you, you're not perfect. And that's the standard. That is an offensive message. 
But there's an inescapable beauty to the gospel message in addition to the offense. It is good that there's not a separate path for some people over others, that God judges, uh, good that God judges all by the same standard. But if the whole of the message is that we're all equally condemned for missing the mark, that is not good news. Who? Yay. That is a message of hopelessness. The beauty of Peter's explanation of the gospel message is not in verses 34 and 35. Radical though that concept is. The beauty of the message is in verse 43. Look there with me now. To him, that is to Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. The beauty of the message is not that God judges all by the same standard, but that God has provided a way to receive salvation despite the condemnation that you and I have justly earned. And he announced that message by the prophets hundreds of years before Jesus was born before he came to accomplish it in time and remember that when scripture speaks of the prophets it's not just talking about the books that we call prophecy it goes all the way back the books of moses are considered because moses was considered a prophet the books of moses are considered prophecy and so when he says moses and all the prophets we're going all the way back to genesis here the whole of the old testament points forward to jesus and says this is god's plan from the beginning that one will come and die in your place Pay the price so that you can't pay, that you deserve to pay, but that you can't pay. It is not all that who keep the law perfectly, personally, and perpetually will thus be granted God's favor by their merit, but rather that all who look to Jesus, trusting in His finished work, in His life, death, and resurrection, to stand in place of your utter failure, Trusting that God will find you acceptable, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of Christ's perfection, Christ's works. We'll say something radical here. The truth, the beauty of the gospel is that you are saved by works, just not by your works. You are saved by Christ's works, the record of His perfection given to you, not because of anything you have done or could do or might do or will do or whatever. It's not because of anything in you, but simply because it pleased Him to do so. We receive forgiveness of sins through or because of or for His name. It is solely because of His good works given to us solely because of His good pleasure done solely for the purpose of His glory that He made you acceptable in His sight. If you are His, it is all for His glory. It is all because of His action for His good purposes. And that's beautiful. Not least because since you didn't do anything to earn it, nothing you do can cause you to lose it. Your good works didn't win salvation for you, so your bad works can't overwhelm your good works and therefore throw you out of the kingdom. Amen. Brothers and sisters, your Savior, Jesus Christ, will not be cheated out of what He purchased at so great a cost. He will not be cheated. You are not strong enough to overcome the grace of Christ. Period. You're great people, but you're not that strong. You are simply not strong enough to overthrow the will of God. Why is this possible? 
This morning is the, officially, technically, is the first Sunday in Advent. The season when we set aside four weeks, several weeks, to both to celebrate the first coming of Jesus into the world and to await His return. This is a fun time, right? It's great. Lots of fun family traditions, gifts, decorations, lots of food. It's great fun. And we rejoice that the infant Jesus was made man, was incarnate. But this time of year, it is far too easy for us to reduce Jesus to an infant in a manger and only that. Don't get me wrong. The truth that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God from eternity past, stepped into time and took on our flesh is a miracle beyond our conception. And we absolutely should celebrate. But the danger this time of year is that we see baby Jesus and think of Him just as a baby, weak, helpless, able to be led or manipulated by us. There's a ridiculous movie years ago where the main character, they're having an argument about who do you pray to, and the main character says, I pray to baby Jesus because I like him better. I like sweet baby Jesus in the manger, not the, not the older Jesus when he gets crazy. And as ridiculous as that is, that's the way we think. Baby Jesus in the manger is a lot less threatening to us. And so we like him better. The baby's not threatening. He doesn't demand change lives from us the way the adult Jesus will in his teaching ministry. I think this is a large part of why Christmas is so much more popular than Easter or Pentecost or Ascension or any of the other Christian days of remembrance. We like Christmas because Jesus seems pretty non-threatening as a baby. But in truth, the Jesus in the manger is exactly as much God incarnate as the Jesus driving money changers from the temple. And He is exactly as much God incarnate as Jesus dying on the cross. And He is exactly as much God incarnate as He is as Jesus rising from the dead and walking out of that tomb. He is God incarnate with all that that implies the entire time. In fact, when, you think of Je- when we think of Jesus in the manger, we have to remember that even, in his, even his infancy is part of his suffering. Even his infancy is part of his suffering that made us whole. Part of his humbling himself to purchase you and me for himself. The foundation of the gospel message is not some esoteric philosophical meanderings discoverable only by those who have been initiated to the secret way and gone to seminary and learned all of the things. That's not how it works. The foundation of the gospel message is very simply Known history. Jesus' work in history, in time, verifiable, identifiable, and seen. I read a uh, a historian recently who said, not a Christian, but a historian who said that Jesus' life and death are the single most, and it's not close, the single most verified events in human history. There, we have more writings, more testimonies to those events and those facts than anything else in all of human history. And it's not close. It's multiple orders of magnitude. We know that he lived. We know that he was there in Palestine. We know that he died. This is not in question. And this historical reality is the basis, is the foundation on which we believe. The bulk of Peter's sermon on this day in Acts is just a recounting of recent history that, that they all already knew about. He says, you all know, you've heard the stories, you've heard what happened. 
just put into context that Jesus is not just a guy, not just a rabbi who taught some things, but that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the one sent to save God's people. When we think about baby Jesus, we must see the shadow of the cross over his life even then in the manger. We must see the wounds that the nails and the spear and the thorns would make. We must remember that those wounds are what we deserved. He came. He voluntarily placed Himself under the curse for a time. Suffered all through His life from His infancy all the way up. Suffered all through His life so that He could purchase a people for Himself, which He did by the record of his entire life, his active obedience where he obeyed God all the way through his life and his so-called passive obedience in his passion, not that he was passively doing nothing, but in his passion suffering. All of the record of his entire life stand as the price that he paid to purchase you and me, Christian. The standard that God required by his, is the standard that his own character required him to require. And it's the same for all, Jew or Gentile alike. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. That's the standard. And no one, Jew or Gentile alike, meets that standard. But the good news of Christ's grace is that He paid the price for His people. He took on all our sin, all the suffering that we deserved. He took it on Himself and He paid the price. And he took his own perfect record, the record of his life, perfect in every jot and tittle, every tiniest little mark on the page. He took that entire perfect record and he lays it on you, Christian. When, Christ, when God looks at you to evaluate you, when Jesus judges as the just judge at the end of time, that's what he'll see when he looks at you. The record of his own perfect obedience. You will be found perfect in that day because you wear the record of Christ. Perfect in every little thing. On the basis of His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension and on and on, we have a sure and certain hope, the salvation of our souls. Therefore, let us worship Him in His incarnation, knowing that it is the only thing possible, the only thing necessary to save us. Child of God, He has done it all. Everything necessary for you to be saved, He has done. So rest in what He has finished. Rest in His accomplished grace for you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for that grace. We thank You that You stood in our place, that You lived a perfect life and died a death You didn't deserve, but we did. We pray, Lord, as we enter into this Advent season, a season of waiting for Your return, let us celebrate what you have accomplished with your first coming. Let us rest in your finished work. Let us partake of your grace with whole hearts that we might be made more and more in your, in, in your image. Glorify yourself, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.